morning, everyone. Let's have a seat. It's good to be with y'all this morning. As Matt said, get all my devices unlocked up here. We decided we need to lock all of our devices. I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony today. And uh, as a part of that, we're also going to go through Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, so before we do that, let me read our text to us. Uh, Pew Bible, I think the page is 1242. You can see up there. I'll give you a second to get there. Let's read Ephesians 2, starting in, uh, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. God, we come together this morning, we come together confessing that we need your grace, we need this grace that you speak of in your word. God, to hear your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Lord, that you would soften our hearts and let us hear the word of truth, that we would be lifted up. God, that we would behold Christ as he is, at your right hand, reigning. God, we love you, and we ask for your help this morning. I ask for your help this morning, God, that you would um, speak through me. Lord, that the word that I share this morning would be impactful to all of us. God, that only truth would exit my mouth. God, that you would defend us from any attacks and lies of the devil as we listen to your word and your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as a part of my testimony, I'm going to give you a little backstory on my family. It's important to, to know that as to see how the Lord saved me. Um, my family, from my earliest memory, was always marked by brokenness. My father and my mother they divorced when I was uh, just a toddler. I don't really have any memories of them together. I only saw them together when they would, we would trade off on the weekends. My mom remarried when I was five, and she had my younger brother. Um, her and my stepdad would divorce just a few years later, though, and she would remarry and, and divorce again before I started high school. It's a lot of tumult early on in my life. The biggest thing, though, was that there was no gospel in our house. There were no Christians. 
We really only went to church on Christmas and Easter, um, so the common problem was brokenness and, and lostness. We were broken people making worldly decisions, and as we read in our text this morning, we were people following the course of the world, sons of disobedience. My father was no exception to this. Uh, he was a man of addiction. He, he was addicted to a lot of things. He was addicted to work, alcohol, drugs. And he had a terrible temper. He would say terrible things. He, and he would put me um, and my family in situations that uh, no one should be in, much less a child. My time with my dad throughout my life, it opened my eyes very early to all the passions of the flesh, to what the world had to offer. I, I got to see the, the world that Paul is describing for us briefly this morning. It's a, a world that is totally corrupt and hopeless. And through that, I developed a lot of anger towards my father for his negligence, selfishness. I knew I never wanted to be like him. I spent my younger years desperately trying to prove to myself and to everyone else that I was a good guy, unlike my dad. I was going to be a good person. He's a bad person. I'm going to be a good person. It became my identity, this, this good guy persona. But despite my best efforts, by the time I was 16, I'd made a lot of bad choices. Um, <clears throat> I made them with the wrong friends. It led me face-to-face with the reality that I, in fact, was broken, that I was hopelessly heading toward the same problems that plagued my dad, addiction, crime, immorality. I was terrified of becoming my dad. That's the only way I can say it. I was terrified. And I didn't know where to turn. And so this is where my story starts to intersect with our text this morning. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians, for me has always been a sweet and reviving word. Um, I think it's a very balanced book. It's got some great convictional truths, some beautiful gospel promises, as we're going to hear this morning, and it has some very practical wisdom and instruction for the church. So before we dive into our text, I just want to ask you a quick question. It's going to be weird, but just bear with me. Do you remember VCRs? Right, okay, so I see some nods, right? So VCRs were like, I mean, my kids are not going to have any idea what a VCR is. But VCRs were this big part of my childhood, right? Everything was on VHS. But there's one thing I remember about VCRs was that it was really hard to set the time on the VCR, right? Everyone, everyone knows what I'm talking about. You could always tell who was good with technology when you go in their house and you look at their entertainment center and they got that time set. You're like, oh, this guy's got it. But most of us just lived with that 12 a.m., that flashing 12 a.m., plastered in the middle of the entertainment center. So one of my friends growing up, his dad actually figured out how to set the time on the VCR. He had to, like, it was this crazy process. You had to hold down, like, two buttons and then do a reset and then hold down another button and wait 10 seconds, and then you had to set the time, and then you had to press another button. If you didn't do it right, it messed up. He figured out how to do it, but every time... This is the problem. Every time the power would go off, right? You have that little blip just for a second. And bam, it's right back to 12, that flashing 12 a.m. So the same thing would happen. I mean, the same thing happens to stove clock, alarm clock, microwave clock. But those are easy to set. So the principle here is that whenever there's an interruption in the power supply, 
these devices return to this default setting. And default setting, that's kind of like a new idea for the technological age, right? But everything has a default setting. iPhones and Kindles and laptops, you can return everything to a default setting. In the first part of our text this morning, there's an interesting thing that I think that Paul is doing here. He's reminding believers that not only do these devices have a default setting, but you do too. We do. We all have a default, all something we always fall back to, kind of that lowest common denominator. So, my first point this morning is your default setting is actually death. Your default setting is death. So as we read these verses this morning, I want to focus in on two. So verses one through three, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So I want to focus on two phrases from there really quickly. I want to focus on dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and then I want to focus on by nature children of wrath. So Paul is reminding us in in, in these few verses, he's reminding the believers at the church in Ephesus where they came from and who they are or who they used to be and then where the rest of the world still is. So let's look at dead and trespasses and sins. It's important to know what dead means in in this context. It's not some kind of ethereal idea of death. It's actual spiritual death. It's not like you're about to die. It's not, I need help. It's not even like that kind of movie version of dead where it's like they're dead and then you go and slap them on the face and bam, they come right back. Oh, you're alive. It's not that. It's actual physical death. No pulse and not like no pulse for a minute. You might come back, no hope. And then by nature, children of wrath. Let's look at that. So this gives us an understanding of the scope of that death, that it's not just things that we've done, it's not just the individual sinful actions that humans have committed, it's our very nature that to the core of who we are, we are sin, and that's the problem. So if you're in Christ, this is what you've been saved from, and it's it's not a small thing, don't overlook it. You went from a cold corpse to vibrant life. It's a complete reversal. And something else we can know is that every Christian, no matter how long you've been a believer, this is your background. No matter if you were saved at seven or this is your first Sunday, worshiping in truth. Your background is death, sin, and trespass. So believer, your alarm clock and the clock on the stove and the VCR that we talked about, they're not the only thing that have a default setting. You do too. So, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? So the course of the world. So your flesh, look at that text for a second. Paul says, in which you once walked following the course of the world. So your flesh, and as Paul talks about the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Your flesh and Satan are constantly pushing you back towards your default, towards death, steering you away from God's truth. And the kind of principle we can apply here is when we unplug ourselves from the means of God's grace, the wonderful means that he's given us to to kind of put ourselves under the fountain of his blessing is 
the reading of the word, your fellowship, worship, prayer, accountability, the spiritual disciplines. When we unplug ourselves from those things, we remove ourselves from those things, we have no choice but the, because the power is the power is interrupted, and we're just going to flow right backwards. Believer, there's an onslaught against you every day of competing voices and influences. The radio, the news, social media, text, emails, it's, it's our entire culture, the entire world is contrary to the character of God. And you must evaluate what voices are dominating your mind and ruling over your spirit. Life is, life is this flowing river. And the Christian, as a Christian, you are swimming upstream as you walk with Jesus. And what that means is there's no treading water. If you stop swimming, where do you go? You get swept back. You can't be still. And that's what Paul is talking about this morning. So to the next part of our text, he's talking about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the work and the sons of disobedience. Let's read those, those words again, starting midway through verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience. So my second, the second point here is the Lord is, is allowing Satan to rule here temporarily. And what I don't want us to miss is that Satan is good at what he does. Paul says the spirit is now at work. Don't miss that. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This means that currently the prince here, Satan, that he is active as God sovereignly allows him influence for a time. John 12, verse 31, Jesus says this himself, that Satan is the ruler of the world. This is by God's, God's allowing him to do that. 1 Peter 5, 8, he, he describes Satan as a prowling lion seeking to devour you. We don't want to miss this. Paul is not just speaking aimlessly about something that doesn't apply to us, the enemy is active now, and he's seeking your demise. It's really easy to forget that you don't just ha <clears throat> have your own issues to contend with, right? Because those are enough. We're kind of overwhelmed with all the things going on in our lives and all the struggles we have. It's easy to forget that you have an enemy who is actively seeking your demise and the demise of the church. Not only this, but it's not like it's just some guy who comes around every once in a while and causes some trouble and then leaves. Satan is powerful. He is smart. He has resources. He will feed you any lie to distract you, and he will fight dirty. Satan has a vested interest in pushing you back towards this default behavior. So don't be confident in yourself, believer. You don't stand a chance on your own. There's only one who has overcome him, and that's Jesus, and he's the source of our power. So thirdly, we all have been or currently are ruled by the flesh. So as we look down in our text again, Paul says, among whom we all, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Specifically, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, not only do we have Satan on our backs, but we have this, these bags of skin that we are stuck in, right? They cause us so much trouble. I think about it this way. 
Have you ever been really good at something? Maybe you have like a hobby or maybe you played a sport for a long time, high school, college. It's something you practice a lot, something you're really good at. It's one of those things where you're, it's so second nature that you can put it down for a long time. Not golf. I thought of golf. Not golf. That's not one of those things. No one's good at golf, and you can't really put that down and come back to it. I used to think that that was me, but it's not. Um, any kind of hobby that you have that you can put down for a while and come back to it, just pick it right back up. It's no problem. It's, it's, it's fundamental to who you are. It's the same with your flesh and with sin. It's the easiest thing in the world to turn right back to your former way of living. And David says in Psalm 51, 5, he was brought forth, David says of himself, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. It's the same for everyone. That's, that's, our, that's our background. That's what we go to. The sin that crouches at the door, it's waiting for you. And so this, back to my story there, this is where I found myself at age 16. Faced with the inevitability of my fallenness. And as much as I thought I was afraid of becoming my father, what I've realized years later, is that I was really afraid of trying my hardest not to become him, and then that happening all the same. I was realizing that how powerless I was over my own fate and over the direction that my sin was going to take me despite my best effort. The very nature of who I was, the very nature of who my father was, the very nature of who we all are, is people who desire unrighteousness at the cost of our lives. So if you're not in Christ and you're here this morning, if you haven't repented and believed, then these verses, they describe you. And this is where you live. You're under God's righteous wrath. And believers... For you, this serves as a reminder of what you have been saved from. This is a caution to you to be on your guard, always ready, always waging war against the flesh, knowing that the Spirit fights with you. To point to this morning speaks to that. Your defense, your defense against all this is the glory of the gospel. Your defense is the glory of the gospel. Let's read that together, starting in verse 4. But God, and now this, Paul breaks it down for us. I said I was going to read the text, but I'm going to interrupt myself. Paul breaks it down for us in, in probably, no, definitely the greatest turn of fortune in all of history, but God. So God says, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy. And, and the way, the text captures that a little bit, but think about that rich in mercy, Paul could have said just he's merciful, but that doesn't describe God. He is rich in mercy, almost as if he defines in his action of salvation what mercy is. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So there's a huge shift in tone here. I want you all to see this. Paul moves from describing the depths of, of the hopelessness of man, totally hopeless, totally corrupt. And then he moves in two words, but God, to the highest glory and the greatest joy that we could imagine, greater than we could imagine. Anything, it's, it's better than anything we could have asked or hoped for. All of a sudden there's hope. 
And then Paul does something interesting. He repeats. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So his repetition here is important because it makes even more pronounced the improbability of the following verses. And it shows where God begins his work of saving us. It says, we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What we see here is where God begins his work of saving us. It doesn't start at some midway point between our effort and God's grace. We don't meet him anywhere. He comes to us. We are a spiritual corpse. And by the blood of Jesus, he breathes life into us. And then God clothes us in Christ's righteousness. He imputes to us Jesus' perfect standing. Jesus takes our guilty status before God and gives us his perfection. That's amazing. Thanks, God. I really appreciate the second chance at life. Maybe I'll get it right the second time. It's really good to have a second chance here. Wrong. Our Heavenly Father doesn't just stop at new life, and that's what these verses are telling us. Read verses, we'll read verses 6 and 7 again. He raised us up with him. So he's given us, made us alive together with Christ and then raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He brings us to life, but that's not good enough for God. He then he raises us up with Jesus. And then he seats us with Jesus. He gives us a place of honor at the king's table. We become co-heirs with Jesus to the riches of God's kingdom. And then God, as if that wasn't enough, will unleash all of his goodness on us in the coming kingdom. All of his blessings will be ours because of Christ. Paul says that in the first chapter of Ephesians. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's, that's ours if you're in Christ. Church, set your eyes on this truth. That you are a co-heir with Jesus because of his work on your behalf. Peter tells us he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the key. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. This truth is a grace to you and a defense against the world, Satan, and your flesh. The larger the reality of the coming kingdom, of all those glories, the larger that looms in your heart and your mind, the less temptation that this world holds for you because it absolutely cannot compare to the glory of Christ on his throne, interceding for you on your behalf before the Father. He's keeping an inheritance for you. Church, hear this. Take hold of that truth. Store it up in your heart. And when the enemy comes, and you know that he will, he comes to accuse you and to remind you of your unworthiness and the condemnation you deserve, you can say, yes. 
I do deserve that. You can freely admit to his allegations, and then you can hit him with that old refrain, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. So back to my story. Over the course of several months, the Lord brought me to my knees. I didn't know that's what he was doing, but that's what he was doing. I was in terrible fear of my future, of these horrible habits I saw welling up in myself, of the pressure my peers put on me to conform. I had convinced myself that I could be good enough to have God's favor, but the evidence of my life was proving me wrong. So in desperation, I did something that I'd never really done before. I prayed. I cried out to God, and I laid it all out. I think I was more honest in that prayer than my whole life leading up to it. And the good thing about only going to church, that's the only good thing, only going to church on Christmas and Easter, is that you pretty much hear the most important scripture for salvation. Just from that limited exposure, I knew Jesus was God, that he came as a baby. He grew into a man. He lived a perfect life on my behalf, and he willingly went to the cross to bear the cost of my sin. I knew that he was resurrected, and that proved the worthiness of his sacrifice. That's what I needed to know in that moment. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit brought me to confession and repentance before God. And in a moment... God opened my eyes to the gospel. Just as Paul's, in Paul's conversion, the Bible describes like scales falling from his eyes. That's the only way I can describe it. I could see. I could see that Jesus was the sweetest name that I had ever heard. I just want to say, if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with God, maybe your life is more like the first part of our text and you're following the course of the world, you're following the desires of the flesh. It's important that you hear this scripture, this promise to you in verse 4, that God is rich in mercy and that Jesus died for all of us while we were still dead in our sins. Your distance from God is of no consequence. If you repent by faith and believe, Jesus' payment is sufficient for you. Take Christ as your propitiation, your substitute, and run to God who spared nothing for you. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Christ is your substitute. Run to God who spared nothing for you. Walk with him and choose life. Choose it today. My final point, Thompson, verses 8. 10, 8 through 10, is your guarantee is God's grace, not your work. Your guarantee is God's grace, not your work. It's verses 8 through 10, I'll read them to you. It says, for by grace you have been saved. These are well-known verses, a beautiful truth, so don't, don't glaze over it. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the order of this passage is important. Let's don't miss out on that. 
verses 1 through 10. The order of the passage is important because it reflects how we approach our walk with the Lord. Good works comes very last because they flow out of our joy in the gospel. There's an order of events, an order of operations. And it's easy to get a cart before the horse in that sense because we have this pesky default mode that we've been talking about. We like to try and wrestle the reins back away from the Lord so that we can show him and ourselves and others how good we are. We say, look at my works, look at my faith, look at my sacrifice. We puff ourselves up because that is what we see in the world. It's how Satan perverts good things and it's how our flesh pulls the wool over our eyes. We take the God-given means of grace and use them to puff ourselves up. Newsflash, church, God doesn't save you for your glory. He saves you for his. Salvation is a testament to his goodness, not your worthiness. And that's a good thing. And that's why the promise is so secure. It's not based on you. It's based on the immutability of God. If you talk with my wife, who will be in the second service, so you may not get a chance to talk with her. But if you talk with her for more than five minutes, you will probably hear this phrase, we're all level at the foot of the cross. And when you've heard it a million times, like I have, it can get kind of hokey. So every time she says it, it's kind of like a, like a little eye roll in the back of my head. But here's the thing. As hokey as it sounds to me, it is so ultimately true. The gospel levels us. We have nothing to claim but the work of Christ. No accomplishment, no resume, no pedigree. Christ puts it all to shame. He is supreme. And that's the unifying theme this morning. The absolute supremacy of Jesus. Christ's righteousness, proven in his resurrection, is powerful enough to overcome the prince of the power of the air. Powerful enough to overcome Satan. Jesus is able to do the impossible and turn the utterly corrupt heart of man from stone to flesh. And not only this, but his glory is so spectacular. Don't miss this. His glory is so spectacular that it obtains for the faithful a place at the banquet table in heaven and an inheritance in the coming kingdom. That's kind of the end of my story. After the Lord brought me to repentance. He provided me with Christian community, and then he discipled me uh, through his word, just reading, reading, and rereading his word. He began to change my life and transform me into a, a godly young man. The Lord sustained me uh, through the difficult years of high school. I had to switch groups of friends about midway through and basically changed my identity. It was, it was tough to kind of figure out who I was. But he sustained me through high school, and, and he deepened my fellowship with him into my college years where I began to sense the Lord's call into ministry. And I have to confess, I was, I was privately very proud of myself when I started getting that confirmation from godly men in my life. I was fooled by my pride into thinking, obviously I should go into ministry, look how great I am. That's what I thought. Again, in my own strength, I, I defaulted to fleshly thinking. But at the same time, 
the Lord placed several men in my life who displayed for me the exact opposite sentiment. They were asking themselves the question, why would the Lord choose me? I'm so messed up. And these men discipled me, and the Lord revealed to me new levels of corruption and deceit that the Holy Spirit needed to root out in my life. It was in brokenness and contrition that I, that I found understanding and reassurance of that call. The Lord had placed the desire in me to commit myself fully to serving his body so much so that I knew there was nothing else I could do. He had placed before me good works, as we see in our text this morning, good works that I should walk in them. And there's nothing more that I want to do with my life than herald that good news. The good news that, that Paul reminds us of this morning, that but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Jesse, if you want to come up, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word of truth. God, that it bears on our souls and it grates against us and sharpens us. God, that your Holy Spirit convicts our minds and our hearts of sin and of waywardness. And God, we pray that we would be a holy people. God, that that would be our spiritual worship that we would walk with you deeply in fellowship and that we would trust fully in the work of Christ as the one and only propitiation for sins, that our only defense against the world and Satan and our flesh is the glory of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to save sinners. There's nothing we can do for ourselves, God. Press that upon our hearts. There's no work we can add to the already perfect work of Jesus on the cross. And his resurrection proves that. God, impress that on our hearts and on our minds. Lord, I pray for us all that you would send us as we go from this place, as ones who proclaim your goodness to a lost world that desperately needs you. Lord, I'm thankful for these people who have a heart for Baltimore, have a heart for Uganda, have a heart for the nations. Lord, grow them in that. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.